Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Surface for business devices are designed for work anywhere. Wherever and however you or your teams work or collaborate, Surface gives your organization the freedom to work anywhere while retaining the control you need to stay secure with built-in security at every layer from chip to cloud protection from Microsoft. Visit www.aka.ms forward slash surfaceforbusiness.ca to learn more about Surface for Business devices. There's been a steady stream of good news about COVID-19 vaccine trials in recent weeks which many of us are watching anxiously as the only real path to an economic recovery. But we also know a vaccine won't be a panacea. So this week, I spoke to National Post reporter Tom Blackwell about how to interpret the most recent news about vaccine trials. The vaccines could downgrade this virus from something deadly to a common cold, Blackwell told me. But vaccines won't necessarily stop transmission of the virus, which means remote working may continue for a while longer. We also spoke about how the success of these vaccine trials may impede other vaccines from advancing, why Canada is ordering nearly 10 doses per person, according to some reports, which is more than any other country, and what we know at this point about where people are catching the virus. Tom Blackwell, thanks so much for joining me on Down to Business. Thank you for having me. So since the pandemic started, We've all been waiting for a vaccine, and now we have a light at the end of the tunnel with several vaccines announced that show a lot of promise. But you wrote an article that said, and I'm paraphrasing, this is a little misplaced, this hope, because a vaccine is not going to end the pandemic. Can you talk to me a little bit about why that is? Yeah, sure. And I should I should say, first of all, you know, th- this is good news. I mean, what we've heard about the first couple of, uh, of vaccines that have hit the finish line, so to speak, that have uh, all but completed their phase three trials, which are designed to to measure the efficacy of the, of the vaccine. What, what we've heard is, is, is pretty good news. But I, I think what we've heard also is not the whole story and perhaps a little bit misleading. And what you read was a quote from a clinical trials expert I interviewed who, who says the narrative that's been put out there by the, by the companies and, and by the media to a certain extent is, is, is not quite accurate. And w- one of the key things is that what they were measuring in both of the uh, first two trials that, that have finished uh, is not whether the vaccine prevented infection, period. What, what they were measuring is whether it prevented people from getting sick. So basically how the trial worked is, you know, if if someone started developing symptoms, they reported that to the trial uh, organizers or, or to their doctor who was part of the trial, then they would be tested to see if they actually have the, the COVID-19 uh, virus. And when we heard the results, for instance, with the Moderna vaccine, that I think there were 95 uh, cases, COVID-19 cases, uh, only five of which were in the group that actually got the vaccine. The rest were in the group that got the placebo. What that measured is people who actually got sick and, and developed symptoms. And of course, we know that, that a lot of people who contract the virus, who get infected, actually don't have any symptoms. And a certain number of those people is, uh, you know, can, can pass that on. 
Right. Meaning you could have COVID and just not show the symptoms. And so that's kind of crucial because if you have the COVID virus but aren't showing symptoms, you can still be transmitting it, which means uh, just a lot, I guess, basically, right? Well, yeah, potentially it does. I mean, the estimates are that anywhere from like 20 to 80% of people who contract the virus don't actually have symptoms. And uh, I think the latest numbers are that a rate of about 40% of symptomatic people uh, amongst the asymptomatic group can actually pass on the virus to others. So, So you still have the potential to pass on the virus. Now, uh, if you're preventing disease, if you're preventing people from getting symptoms, from getting sick, that is still a major, a major advance. And, you know, it, it, as one expert I talked to said, you know, it, you could potentially downgrade this from a frequently deadly disease to essentially the common cold through, through the use of these vaccines. So it, it's, it's not nothing at all. It's, it's still it's still a big deal. But it's not uh, it's not sort of ending transmission of this completely, which is, I think, kind of the impression that a lot of people got. Right. No, this is a huge, it's a huge deal, like you said. I mean, it's if we could sort of downgrade this from something deadly to a common cold. But the, what was part of what was really interesting to me, too, is where how you dug into the business of vaccines. And one question I wanted to ask you was how these early announcements about effective vaccines may affect future vaccine trials. Um, and sort of the creation of a vaccine that could definitively stop infection, say, or or may just be more effective, maybe require less doses, something like that. Yeah, no, this is this is really interesting and not and something that I hadn't really thought about before. But uh, ethics of clinical trials and clinical trials are the trials that involve human beings <laughs> um, to test the effectiveness of a drug or, or a vaccine. The ethics are that if you're going to offer sort of one half of the participants a placebo, there can't be another drug or vaccine that's effective that they could have been taking. So what that means in this context is, you know, if you have two, three uh, vaccines that are approved for uh, COVID-19 and that are potentially widely available, can you then conduct a clinical trial on another vaccine where half the people don't get anything? They get a placebo. And and would anyone agree to be part of that kind of uh, a trial? Generally, the, the thought is that, that sort of under the ethics of clinical trials, you couldn't really do that. You know, the problem there is, as, as you mentioned, that, uh, you know, there are other vaccines sort of in the pipeline further back in the testing process that might have other advantages, such as, you know, only requiring one dose or not requiring the vaccine to be kept in, in sort of super cold storage, which uh, one of the first two does require. So, you know, the, the, the worry is that the success of these ones could sort of impede, you know, development of other sort of alternative vaccines that, that, that have their own advantages. Really interesting. Given how much money and ha- has been thrown into combating this particular virus and how unique this virus is, did anyone say like normally that would be impossible, but in this case, some vaccines may still be able to go forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think there is uh, certainly a hope that, that there'll be some more flexibility in this case. Um, and apparently, uh, someone's telling me that, that there is sort of an advisory group for the World Health Organization actually had a you know conference call about this uh, uh, you know a few days ago discussing this kind of thing. Um, so I mean, I you know I, I suspect that there will be some flexibility. 
and and there are ways around this issue. Like for instance, instead of having placebo, you know, you compare your new vaccine with one of the ones that's already been approved, and you know that that way, no one in the trial will go without a vaccine at all. The only problem with that is that you know because everyone's getting a vaccine, you're going to get few, fewer infections, and it's going to take longer, and you're going to need more people to to get a result. But but that's sort of one way around it. Very interesting. And one of the things you mentioned was that with certain vaccines, people may have to take more than one dose. This may shed some light perhaps on why Canada is in line to receive something like on the order of 10 doses for every person in the country. But it doesn't totally explain why Canada is ordering so many doses of these vaccines. Is there a logic here to why we're getting so much and and even how we're able to get so much? Well, yeah. I mean, the rationale is they wanted to pre-order these vaccines, not knowing which one of them or, or any or whether any of them w- would reach the finish line and, and end up being effective and be approved and, and, and be available on the market. So, you know, uh, as, as Canada was uh, making these deals with the various companies, we didn't know which of them would, you know, would end up being successful. So the rationale was, you know, let's sort of hedge our bets. Uh, make a deal with a bunch of different vaccine manufacturers, you know, using different technology, and and we'll see what what works out. But yeah, as you mentioned, the interesting thing is, um, and it's some uh, researchers at Duke University in um, the state, you know, first sort of identified this <laughs> that as a result, Canada is now, in terms of of the pre-ordered doses of vaccine, is well above anyone else in in the in the world, including the U.S. and the U.K. and and Australia, which have been fairly aggressive in, in making these arrangements. So yeah, I mean, it's like, it's the equivalent of 10 doses per, per person. Yeah, that, that's raised some, some issues in terms of sort of the, the, the ethics of that, I guess. Before we get into the ethics, just a question, what are the actual mechanics of how this works? I mean, you mentioned Canada made deals with these companies. Was it purely a sort of exchange of money in advance? I think everyone assumes that that is how it's working. Now, you you raise an interesting point because the federal government has been fairly opaque about these deals. And what they have told us is, you know, we have a firm order for X million doses of so-and-so's vaccine, and then we have an option for an additional X million doses. That's essentially what they've told us. Now, other countries have been much more uh, open, I think, about uh, the deals they've struck and have actually said, you know, how much they're paying per dose and, and what the total outlay is to each of those companies. We don't actually have that kind of uh, detailed data on, you know, what, what the deals that Canada has, has struck, which I think is a bit problematic. We also don't know as part of those deals exactly when the individual companies have, have promised to deliver a vaccine. Because, of course, you know, they have customers, uh, they all have customers in different parts of the world. And, you know, in some cases, other countries were the, were the sort of the first in line. So it's unclear exactly when Canada will, will get theirs. But, you know, as, essentially, yes, Canada makes a deal to, to pay X amount of money and, and they get the vaccine. How much money? We don't really know. Right. I think the number I saw you report somewhere was that Canada had paid $440 million for for some sort of initiative to develop a vaccine. Yeah, that, that's a separate um, sort of enterprise. It's called uh, COVAX. And that's a, 
an initiative of the WHO and a group called Gavi, which is sort of a charity that helps get vaccines to developing countries. And, and the idea there is countries contribute to that to sort of a central fund. And, th- and that organization, COVAX itself, makes deals to to get a vaccine. Some of it goes to the country that's contributing money. Some of it goes to poor countries that maybe can't afford to make their own deal. For for that initiative, Canada has contributed, I think, something like $440 million. And about that, half of that is for Canada's share of, of that organization's uh, vaccines. But that's separate from all these other deals. Yeah, I mean, I think you sort of hinted at it just now that getting a vaccine isn't going to do anyone any good if you still have huge parts of the world that are don't have access to a vaccine where the pandemic is still spreading. And, you know, obviously it would protect some of the more vulnerable people here, but it's not necessarily going to lead to an economic recovery if large parts of the world remain shut down for years and years. That is certainly the argument that especially some, you know, development organizations are are, are making that. And they they sort of accuse uh, the richer countries like Canada of of essentially hoarding that vaccine in course of that, uh, depriving developing countries of of their share. The argument is that as long as there is COVID-19 spreading in some part of the world, your corner of the world is is still vulnerable. And before everyone is is vaccinated. Interestingly enough, the Rand Corporation did a uh, a report recently that that estimated that every dollar that, that rich countries invest in helping poorer countries get access to vaccine, it actually would produce something like five dollars in in economic benefits for those richer countries. That advantage is so it's not not entirely an altruistic question of of helping poorer countries, but you know could, could also sort of help us, I guess. Shifting gears for just a second, though, to a topic other than vaccines, I think the pandemic have caused people to reflect a little bit on how their local, provincial, and federal governments have handled the situation. And one of the best defenses is something a lot of people still don't know about, contact tracing. Can you just talk about what contact tracing is and how it's been working out here in Canada? Yeah, sure, and and it, and essentially, what it what it means is a pretty simple concept. Is you know you identify someone who's who's tested positive for COVID nineteen, then you go back trace uh, all the people that they had contact with in, in a certain period before they tested positive, and you have those people tested, and and if necessary, they go into isolation. So it's it's a way of sort of looking for the the embers that may have been left that could set you know fire somewhere else and and sort of stamping those out um, before they do sort of blow up and and uh, and spread more widely. So it's kind of a simple idea, but has proven you know over the years quite effective. But the problem is in Canada, at least, and, and I think it's the same in, in countries like the states where the spread has been even more out of control. It it seems like you know at a, at a certain point. The spread has gotten so widespread that the contact tracing efforts have sort of failed and basically have been overwhelmed by the number of cases. And I guess you can imagine if you don't have enough people doing this and you get a large number of cases that you have to sort of do the, the tracing for, that it becomes sort of impossible after a point. Can we just pause for a second? Can you just describe for a minute, contact tracing is generally, it's like an app that you download onto your phone which sort of allows you to see when and where you may have been in proximity to someone. If you contract COVID, it allows you to sort of trace it. Is that, am I defining it pretty well? 
that is sort of a new development. That's something that's that's actually been developed uh, since the pandemic started, and, and it's a it's that's a new way of doing contact tracing. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's it's unclear how how successful that's been. I mean, Canada there is a federal uh, contact tracing app like that. I, I know I downloaded it, but I'm not sure how widely it's being used. But really, the traditional way of doing it is is you know public health agencies they have units of, of people who you know get on the phone and and start calling people to, you know, the person who's tested positive gives them a bunch of names or tells them where they've been over the last uh, week or two. In other words, they're basically like reporting out. If you get it, they try to figure out sort of just by talking to you and interviewing you verbally, all the places you've been and where you may have contracted the virus and where you may have spread it or something like that. Yeah. And I think even more specifically, they will get names and numbers of people that they have been in contact with, if, po- if possible. And yeah, so it's a bit of detective work. And in fact, interestingly, in, in Singapore, early in the pandemic, they actually recruited real detectives to uh, to help out in this, in this work and, and had quite a lot of success with that. But I think the problem in Canada is that we've, uh, we haven't really, despite talk about doing this, we haven't really beefed up these operations uh, that much. Uh, so this is why they're getting overwhelmed, I think. Yeah. I mean, w- what kind of a grade would you give the government if you could? I don't know if you can answer that question, but how, if you had to grade the government's effort on this, what would you say? Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's it's another area that's kind of opaque. I mean, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. I, I, I think, though, the bottom line is that, you know, we knew that there was going to be a second wave. The numbers were going to get big again. And there was sort of a bit of a respite, you know, in the summer where things had calmed down in most of Canada. And it seemed like that would have been the time to really beef up the contact tracing teams and hire a lot more people and uh, coup people from from different parts of government to, in, into this. And the impression I get is not a lot of that happened, or if it did, it was not really to the extent that was necessary. So, I mean, I, I would give them that government's probably not a passing grade on, on, on this front. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't fault the, the public health agencies per se. I mean, they... they they work with the resources that they're given, but it uh, just it appears that they weren't really given enough resources to to do this job properly. Okay, so just about contact tracing. If we had been a little better at this, we could potentially really under understand a lot more about how to manage it instead of what seems like a little bit of chaos where we're all kind of staying away from restaurants or sitting inside heating tents without really having hard data on what actual risks we face. I think about 10,000 restaurants have already closed down permanently in Canada. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs have been lost in that way. Can you just tell me a little bit about anything we know about where people are catching COVID and contracting COVID in Canada? Yeah. I mean, the, the bottom line is that we don't really know a lot. Partly because of the problems with with contact tracing, uh, there's not enough of it being done. Um, I mean, there is some data out there, and restaurants and bars do figure in, in that. And I think in Ontario, they've estimated that restaurants and bars and clubs, you know, count for six percent of the outbreaks, and that's where like two or more uh, people uh, usually contract COVID nineteen from from a single source. Daycare centers, schools, long-term care facilities, industrial plants uh, are also amongst those that have had a fair number of outbreaks. You know, as one expert mentioned to me, that the thing that they do measure is 
outbreaks, but those actually account for relatively small proportion of the total cases. So often it's just one person getting COVID-19 from another person somewhere, and then that person passes it on. So it's not considered an outbreak, but this is still responsible for a lot of the transmission. And we don't really have a good handle on, on where those people are are, are getting it, uh, which seems like a, a frustrating part of this whole picture. You know, it'd be nice to know exactly where you know this is happening but we don't really we don't really know that well and, and it's very frustrating especially for industries like the restaurant industry which have uh, suffered so much because of this absolutely well tom it was really interesting to have you on the show obviously some great reporting that you've done so i just wanted to thank you so much for for joining me on down to business this week well thank you very much it was uh, it was really interesting to talk about all this that was Tom Blackwell, a reporter at the National Post. Thank you for listening, and thanks to the Down to Business team, Bryce Hall for music and production, Yudula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven for web support. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating Down to Business on your podcast app and sharing an episode with someone. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next episode, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.